it is uh, December, if you can believe it or not, which is kind of crazy to me, and Christmas is only 20 days away, if you're counting. And today we begin a series on the incarnation of Christ, a good traditional Christmas series. Um, But before we jump in, let us ask the Lord once again to bless the time that we have. Our Father and our God, we once again come face to face with this incredible mystery of the Incarnation. Father, as we open your word this morning, would you make our hearts and minds open to the truth that you have revealed to us through it? Father, for your saints, would you fortify our faith? And if there is anyone here who does not have saving faith in Jesus Christ, would you work in their lives? Pull back the curtain and let the true light of Christ shine. I pray that you would cause me to decrease and Christ to increase. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you closed your Bibles already, go ahead and open them back up to John chapter 1. And this very familiar passage of Scripture, a very beautiful passage, passage of scripture, a section of scripture that has sparked conversation, controversies, philosophy, division, and unity for centuries. The list goes on. And this time of year is focused around the birth of Christ, and over the next few weeks we will be uh, going into the different narratives and the implications of that. But today I want to give a kind of overview The Gospel of John does not have a, what we might consider a traditional birth narrative like Matthew and Luke have um, from an earthly point of view. But if you took the birth narrative and you took out Mary and you took out Joseph and you took out the wise men and the shepherds and the star and the manger and Herod and really everything that you might find on a Christmas card, you get the incarnation of John in the prologue. But this narrative in no way diminishes the birth story of Christ. In fact, it gives us a more uh, supernatural view of the incarnation, a more profound and thought-provoking view in some ways, a view that is so full of theology and Christology, a view that has four very simple yet so complex words. The word became flesh. No other words define our core theology as Christians as these four words. No other words can perplex us in the way that these four words do. No other four words can cause us such awe and wonder as these four words do. But this near, uh, the infinite God of the universe, the infinite God of the universe, entered into time. After this prologue, Jesus enters into the narrative already as a grown man and heading into his earthly ministry. We get no view of the child Jesus in the temple like Luke gives us. We get no view of Mary and Joseph and finding no room at the inn and having to find a spot for it. The prologue of John can actually cause us to look at the traditional Christmas story in a deeper way. All four Gospels in some way seek to show the divinity of Christ to a different audience, the Messiahship of Christ. But John, the latest of the Gospel writers, holds nothing back. That baby you read about in Matthew, 
John might say, that's good, and that's God. That is, the Word became flesh. He's the Logos. He is the Word become flesh. And this wonder, this absolutely profound truth, is often glossed over to many Christians. The opening line of John's Gospel has sparked enough centuries of discussion, yet contains one of the most profound and simple truths the Bible has to give. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We are introduced for the second time in Scripture to Almighty God. The first, Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. Here in John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I've always loved how John begins his gospel, a hearkening back to Genesis chapter 1. The opening of John's gospel is very important because it sets the standard of what we believe about Jesus Christ. The most important question that we can ask is, who is my God? Is the most important question any of us can ask. Who is my God? Why is this question important? It's important because it determines everything about who we are, how we live, our idea of good and evil, how you view other people, your politics, sexuality, family, where your authority comes from, and ultimately, what is truth? In Genesis 1, we are introduced to God. He is eternal. He established time. In order to establish time, he has to be outside of time. He is not bound by time as we are. God is the creator of all things. He sets the limits of the universe and sets the boundaries of nature. I've always loved how Job puts this creation imagery in our minds. He sets the boundaries of the waves and says you can go no further. He is almighty power and God. In John 1.1, we see these same qualities on display, but John gives us this word, the logos. What is the logos? The word. There are many ideas and thoughts surrounding the logos in ancient times. The surface, the logos, is the foundation behind human reason. Philo links the logos over 1,300 times to as a mediating figure linking the transcendent God with the world. In some Greek thought, the logos was the general reason and order to everything. And all of this is great and interesting to consider and to think about. But John gives us a foundation to build off of. The Logos is not just an idea or a philosophical outlook, but the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. John does not begin with a concept of thought, but with the historical person of Jesus Christ, an eternal member of the triune God. And what is absolutely crucial for our understanding here is the truth of this word eternal. The second member of the Trinity, the Son, did not come into existence in the incarnation. He is eternal. The Son took on a human nature and took on human flesh at the incarnation. But if the Son came into existence 
in the beginning, then he would be a created being. He would not be eternal, and this is a popular idea of the world. I often, when I preach, I will bring up certain things like uh, the cults, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, and today I will not shy away from that again and bring up Jehovah's Witnesses. The New World Translation of the Bible is the Bible the Jehovah's Witnesses use, and it is a very deceptive translation, if you can even consider it that. And I've mentioned this before, but the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Michael the Archangel is the first and greatest creation of Jehovah God, and that at the Incarnation, Michael, in a sense, ceased to exist and became Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he was once again Michael, the archangel. And in this way of thought, the Son is not eternal, but a created being. And this very same passage in the New World Translation, John 1.1, reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, little g, God. Even as the first and greatest creation of God, an angel who comes to this earth as a person does not fit the description given to us here in John's narrative or in the narrative Isaiah gives us. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The author of Hebrews speaks of it this way when he writes, quoting Psalm 97, 104, 45, and Deuteronomy 32, that all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, you got, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And then the famous Psalm 110, quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, And to which of his angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The angels did not appear in a multitude to the shepherds to glorify a created being. They serve and glorify the one true and living God. And we see this picture in the book of Revelation as well as the many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. John made no mistake when he wrote this prologue. John was very clear in saying that the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was Yahweh, making a distinction in saying he was with God, but also identifying him as God, distinct in persons, but not separate. In this, Christ is set apart from all created things. He is in a position above and with authority over creation. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. The Greek word here that we translate all things means all. 
the whole, every kind. All things through him came into being. If he was a created being, all things could not come through him because he would have to be included into that category. This is where our friends, the Jehovah's Witnesses, have another manipulation of the text to, with their, to fit their beliefs. Colossians 1.16 in the New World Translation reads, Because by means of him all other things were created. The incarnation is not about an angel who became a man. The incarnation is not about a little g God who became a man. The incarnation is not about a man who was born to a woman and did all the right things and thus ascended and became a God. The incarnation is about the eternal God entering into his own creation, the humble and unthinkable action that the Lord of glory would, in a sense, step off down off his throne to enter into such a broken and dark world. And of course, we as Christians know that Christmas is not about the gifts or the lights or the tree or the horrible Hallmark movies, but God become man, a baby born to die. Yet in him, John says, was life. And the life was the light of man. John likes this word, life. Almost one half of the uses of it in the New Testament are found in his writings. Jesus is the living water that leads to life. He is the bread of life, the spirit and life, the light of life. There is life in no other. And this life is the light of men, John says. As one commentator put it, the light of men enables people to see that God is at work in the world, a beacon of hope. The first advent, God with us, Emmanuel, God dwelling with man. And he will come again to dwell with man forever in a new and restored world where there is no sin or death or darkness. But this first advent, God entered into a very dark world. And this is where I want to focus most of our attention this morning. This picture of Christmas is a happy time of year filled with joy and color and lights. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. We should have joy in remembering the coming of our Lord to celebrate this first coming. And I think that's an appropriate response. But the light, but he was also light to a dark world. And in verse 5, it says this the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The world back then was just like the world since the fall. And the world today is like the world back then it's dark, there's sin, we are under the curse. And the Greek word used in this verse when it says the darkness has not overcome it means to seize or to grasp. And commentators have pondered, is this giving us a physical picture of seizing or grasping, or is this a seizing or grasping of the mind? And the Expositor's Bible Commentary and many others don't see a problem really with either of these pictures, as it still makes a very clear picture of what we're supposed to understand. If it is giving this picture of a physical seizing, 
we have a message of hope that darkness cannot and could not ever overcome or extinguish the light. There is no chance. If it is of the mind, we have this picture of darkness not understanding or comprehending the light. And either one has truth. I tend to favor the second one as I think about this when I read this passage. The darkness cannot understand or comprehend the light. Those in darkness do not want the light. Just two chapters away from this, John chapter 3, we read, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Those in darkness do not want the light. Those in darkness see glimpses of the light, and we are to be the light of the world, the city on the hill that shines as the example to Christ, the world, reflecting his image. But those in darkness are blind, truly blind. Many are okay with the idea of Jesus, but have no reason to step into the light. And many who call themselves Christians today seem to straddle the fence of light and darkness. And it makes me think of a pirate. And nowhere in my career up in a pulpit would I ever think I would ever use a pirate as an example for an illustration. But the image of a pirate kind of conjures up a few things in our mind. Maybe a hooked hand or a wooden leg. But one thing that most people think of when they think of a pirate is this idea of an eye patch. And the eye patch, while many of them may have been missing an eye and wanted to cover up the hole that was in their head, many of them, historians believe, did not wear an eye patch because they were covering an eye injury, but because they would constantly have to be going up and down, below deck, above deck, and the below deck was very, very dark. And so they would wear the eye patch above deck so one eye would not get used to the light. So when they had to go below deck, they could take the eye patch off and switch it to the other eye and have one eye already accustomed to the dark so that they could easily maneuver, especially when they are pillaging another ship that they tried to take over. But it was to be used to both the light and the darkness. And so many people live like this today. They want the benefits of the light, but keep one eye used to the darkness. And they think this will be enough. Yet the Bible addresses this, Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 15. This is Christ addressing the church in Laodicea. While it is to an actual historical church, the application fits. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you would either be hot or cold. But so because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. There is no such thing as having one foot in the light and one foot in darkness. You are either in light or you are in darkness. And to those of us who possess Christ, we are in the light. Our message to a dark world is that there is indeed light. 
That no matter how bad things may look on the outside, there is a great light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not and cannot extinguish it. Verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Christ is the true light. Christmas, this holiday that so many celebrate, millions of people who reject, who reject the true light celebrate this day. And for them, the true light illuminates coming judgment. The, world, the word translated light here gives this picture of shining upon. So regardless if people acknowledge the light or accept the light, it still shines. It's still true. People can close their eyes or, in a sense, go below deck, but it does not stop the light from shining above. And that's exactly what happens. The world closes their eyes to this light. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. If we dare to venture into the light, our evil deeds will be exposed. And no one likes to be found out or caught red-handed. No one likes to have their sin on display. But as I said earlier, the light shines whether our eyes recognize it or are used to it or are open to it or not. And there will come a day when all will be exposed whether we admit it or not. And on that day, it will be too late. There is no second chance. This is what we have, right here, right now. And this is why we present the gospel. This is why we plead with people and bring them this hope, because we want people to know the joy of Christ our Savior. We want people to see the light. This is kind of an image that we tend to kind of make fun of in our world. I've seen the light. I've had this great light bulb coming on moment. I've seen the light. But it is a wonderful picture. It's a biblical picture. If you know the day and time of your conversion, of the time when Christ brought you from death to life, and you recognize, I've seen the light. That is a glorious and wonderful thing to look back on, to remember, and to celebrate. God has shown us at Christmas that he is good, and he is kind and merciful, and he gives this testimony of that, that this God who we worship, this God of eternity, is not far off. He did not create a universe only to step back and let us just kind of ruin everything. God has not dangled righteousness in front of us knowing that we can never achieve it or taunt us with it. But the blessed God of all eternity loved us, that he humbled himself and entered into human history to live a perfect life and to die the death that we all deserve, that we may be viewed as righteous, not because of anything we have done, but because of everything that Christ has done for us. We are all made in God's image, but we are not all 
children of God. And we see this in the next line of John's passage. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. John makes this clear, and it almost echoes the words of John, the baptizer, in Matthew chapter 3. When he says this, But he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. He said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Just because we say we are Christian does not necessarily make it so. Just because we have been raised a certain way or said a certain prayer or, or in our lives does not make us Christians. Those who repent and believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ are the ones that are given the right to become children of God. We are adopted into the family of God, and that is a wonderful and beautiful picture that we have. The moment that we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we are adopted into the family of God. I was talking to a friend of mine just last night about what this means. We don't get to make up whatever we want about Jesus or even pick and choose the things we like in the Bible and the things we don't like in the Bible. We need the full and complete biblical Jesus. The one who tells us to love our neighbors as ourselves, as well as the one who said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And do not commit adultery, do not commit murder, and so on and so forth. Many people see Jesus as this loving teacher who would never, ever condemn anybody. And of course, Jesus' message to the world was a message of love, but to truly love somebody is to tell them the truth. And sometimes that can be hard. R.C. Sproul says this, Give me the biblical Christ, or give me nothing. To believe him to be the Savior is also to believe him to be the judge. To see him as the baby in the manger is to also know that he is coming back again to judge the quick and the dead. We need the full picture of Christ. And that's what John is trying to communicate for all who believe in Jesus as the Christ. And these next few weeks leading up to Christmas, I'm sure we will get into the stories of the shepherd and the wise men and the wonderful narratives that those are. And I do not want to sound like I am dismissing the beauty and wonder that is truly the Christian Christmas story. But the manger always sat in the shadow of the cross. Jesus came to be a savior. Without the cross, we would just have a miraculous birth and a perfect life. Without the shedding of blood, we would have no forgiveness of sin. Without an empty tomb and a resurrected Christ, we would have no hope of everlasting life with him. We must have the full Jesus, the babe in the manger and the savior on the cross the sinless man, and the everlasting God. It is because of this that we can celebrate the beauty that is the Christmas season. Some of my favorite lyrics of any Christmas song out there, and 
I wrote this last part last night and kind of revising everything, so I kind of wish I would have picked this song to end on today, but I'm sure we'll sing it here in the next couple weeks. But peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man may no more die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased is man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Let's pray. Father, what an absolute gift your word is to us. So simple that a child may understand, yet so deep and profound that we could spend a hundred lifetimes and still never reach the depth of truth that is in it. Thank you, Lord, that you are not a God who is far off and absent, but one who is close, present, and active in all aspects of your creation. Thank you for entering into human history. Thank you for living the life that we ought to live and dying the death that we deserve in our place for our sins. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. And now, Lord, be glorified in our continued worship of you. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.